You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Psalm 129, we find ourselves nearing the tail end of a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascents, songs that the people of Israel would sing three times each year when they went up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so this is the 10th psalm or the 10th step, if you will, of the 15 in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And in this psalm, we learn a lot about the toughness of Christianity, the strength of the life of pilgrimage. As I was studying and preparing for this psalm, I began to think about man who served as my pastor uh, during my college years. And he and his wife were both afflicted with some pretty serious illnesses and sicknesses. And to see their strength and resolve, it just meant a lot to me in those early years of my Christianity. They stood out to me as some of the toughest people that I'd ever known. There was nothing weak about them. They were all strength. Their Christianity took strength, but their Christianity also made them strong. And while some might think of Christianity as something that is weak, here in this psalm, we see it as something that gives great strength. And the Holy Spirit, we know, works to produce in us things like endurance and perseverance and patience and long-suffering. And so here in this psalm, we're going to see that the pilgrim life is not a weak life. It takes strength, but it also gives strength. And this song declares that transaction. We're going to see four things in this song. Number one, that we have to have honesty. Honesty that it will be painful at times. But number two, introspection. Uh, consideration that the pain, although real, does not prevail upon us. And then number three, we must rejoice because God gives deliverance. It's his pattern. It's his method. And then number four, we must wish for a deeper life as a pilgrim. And so the song begins with great honesty, verse 1 through 3. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. So here it sounds like, or it seems as if, one singer begins the song. It starts out as a solo. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then the whole community is invited in to sing when the phrase, let Israel now say, is spoken. So the soloist says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then all of Israel sings, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And this, of course, is not just a sob fest where everybody's crying, but they're testifying. You know, it's been hard. It's been difficult. From the very beginning, from our youth, it has been painful. Now, the community is confessing that they have been afflicted. And the question, of course, is how so? And there are a few ways that they describe their affliction. First of all, they say that it has been great. Greatly have they afflicted me. The, the affliction was great or massive or large. 
The affliction also was from their youth. In other words, their earliest memories as pilgrims is that of persecution, difficulty, affliction. And of course, as we look into the word of God, we understand that Satan has busily tried to crush the line of Christ. Whether it was the temptation of Eve, which led to the fall of mankind through Adam, whether it was Cain killing Abel, or the wickedness at the time of Noah, or the attempts constantly to snuff out the line of Abraham, or whether it was later on in Second Kings chapter 11, wicked Queen Athaliah's attempt to exterminate the line of David, on and on we understand that this is Satan trying to crush God's people, to crush the line of Christ. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, from God's vantage point, it says that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Satan has always, in that image, been present and ready to crush God's people, to crush the line of Christ. But now that Christ has been born and has lived and died and been buried and risen from the grave, still Satan tries to kill the line of Christ through persecution or through compromise or through error. And so they say, from our very youth, there's been affliction. From our very beginning, we've been under attack. So it's been great. It's been from our youth. But then they use this imagery to say, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. There, the idea is that our back is like a field. And our persecutors or our afflictors or our enemy are like farmers who dug in deep and made long their furrows upon our back. You know, it's this painful image of your back being churned and tossed up and dug into. And of course, this is appropriate because so many of the afflictions of God's people are just like that, the beating down upon the back. And, and how can we not think of the striking down upon the back of Christ, that by his stripes we are healed, the scourging that Jesus went through before he went to the cross. And so here they sing and they say, we're like that. You know, we've endured that. We've gone through that level, that type of pain. It's been intense. It's been strong. And I think what we're seeing here right off the bat is just real honesty. That the pilgrim life so often is and will be filled with pain. You know, sometimes before I will go out on a long run up a hill or a mountain or something like that with a with a man, and if it's his first time, I'll try to just be totally honest with him, you know, and explain to him that this will probably probably be one of the most difficult things that you've done for a long time. You know, your lungs are going to feel like they're about to explode. Your legs are going to get wobbly. This is going to be really difficult, but at the end, it will feel very good. And there's no use in, at the beginning, in my mind at least, painting a picture as if it won't be hard or it won't be painful. Here, the pilgrims are very honest as they sing this song. This pilgrim life is painful at times. It's like plowers plowing upon the back. The affliction is very real. The affliction is very strong. And, you know, rather than paint a picture 
of our Christianity, that it's all peaceful, that it's all, you know, pure blessing, that there is no hardship, that there is no difficulty. We actually do a disservice to people when we communicate that brand of pilgrimage or Christianity to them. No, here we're learning that there's an honesty that is required for to become steeled or strengthened for pilgrimage. Now, secondly, there's also a bit of introspection that is required. Honesty is good, but they think even further about things. And introspectively, did you notice there, in the middle of verse 2, after singing twice, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, they then add a new little statement, yet they have not prevailed against me. They look back upon all of their affliction, all of their difficulty. And even though it's been hard, even though there have been times where it felt like their back was being plowed up, they look back and they say, but the truth of the matter is that our enemy has not prevailed against us. The afflictors have not won. Now, I think that one of the greatest of God's revelations is the ancient people of Israel. I mean, God certainly has revealed himself to mankind through general revelation, his creation. As we look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the order of everything, as we see the tides and the seasons, as we consider the galaxies, as we consider the intricacy of the human body, as we consider all of that, we're, we can learn a lot about God if our hearts are opened up to him. And also, of course, God has revealed himself to us in his word. He sent prophets and apostles to record for us his written will. And so God reveals to himself in his word. And if we study it and think about it, we can learn about God. And of course, God has most greatly revealed himself to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. We can learn about God by looking to Jesus, who is God in flesh. But one part of God's general revelation, aside from his creation, is the nation of Israel. God has, you know, revealed himself through the history of other nations, to be sure. Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome all went the way that God declared that they would go. But with Israel, what you have is a people that God has been so faithful to. He revealed himself to Israel. He would discipline Israel. He gave his judgments to Israel. And he faithfully has preserved Israel all of these years. Even though they've been a perpetually hated people with nations and kings attempting to wipe them off the face of the, the earth, Israel still exists. And this testifies of the grace of God. This is part of what the pilgrims are singing when they say, yet they have not prevailed against me. But as we personalize this in our own lives, it is good for us to consider Number two, that the pain has not prevailed. It's good to be honest about the reality of the pain, but we also have to have a bit of introspection that the pain has not prevailed over us. Think about it. The painful affliction in your life never 
totally wins in Christ. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He said, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, Paul is saying, you know, in Christ, with this glorious gospel treasure inside of us, this and, and inside of these clay jars or these clay pots, is that glorious gospel is inside of us. And we go through affliction, crushing, or perplexion, or persecution, or even the death of Jesus. What is manifested is not defeat. What is manifested is a reality that we're not driven to despair. We're not struck down. And the life of Jesus is manifested in these bodies of ours. Consider some of the saints of old. You know, you might say that Abel, when Cain killed him, lost. But the reality is, is that God's word speaks of Abel as righteous Abel. His faith still speaks to us today. And Abel is alive in the presence of God. No, even though he experienced the ultimate sacrifice, death himself, he actually won. God made him victorious. And this is true on and on throughout God's word. Job and David and Paul, as they were persecuted and hated, God won his great victories. The pain has not prevailed. I often think even about the beautiful letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. You know, I love them. We study them. We read them. We learn so much of God in them and God's will. But if you ever stop to consider how many words Paul wrote that were a direct byproduct of persecution and hatred, you know, people that were coming against him and attacking him and his doctrine, and in defending himself or in wanting to give the truth, he wrote these beautiful things that still today, a couple thousand years later, we study and we learn of God within them. And so do you think this way about the pilgrim life? Do you see it as something that is weak, something that is overcomable? Or do you consider that the great glorious gospel of Christ has come to reside inside of you and the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside of you and the pain will not prevail over you. You know, there are some plants and flowers that are perennial. They last all year long. And it doesn't matter whether it's the winter storms or the summer heat. They live, they survive, and they can thrive in all conditions. And then, of course, there are some flowers that are seasonal. They grow up, and then they wither, and they die with the changing of the season, with the heat of the sun or the brutality of the winter. The Christian life is meant to be the perennial kind of life, that without cessation, it perpetually and unceasingly moves on. The pain will not prevail. Do you see the Christian walk, the pilgrim life as this kind of life? So then he moves on in the song to our third point. You know, first we have considered that we have to have an honesty because it will be painful at times. And introspection, 
to understand or remember that the pain has not prevailed. But number three, we must rejoice because God delivers. He says in verse four, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. You know, the question that we'd ask is, why hasn't our affliction prevailed? Why why hasn't why haven't our afflictors been able to take us out? And the answer is simple. It's the Lord. It's not our own strength. It's not our own power. It's the Lord. Uh, I want you to consider two scriptures today at this point. Isaiah 43, verse 2, God speaking to Israel said, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God is saying, you're going to go through the waters, which are difficulties. You're going to pass through the rivers. You're going to go through the fire and through the flame. But in that moment, I will be with you. They will not consume you. And the reason for, for, for that success, of course, is that God will be with us. Now, I want you to consider, uh, secondly, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason that our affliction has not prevailed is that God is using our affliction to purify our faith. He is standing with us and using the affliction like fire to burn away the impurities within our lives. Now, what they sing here, though, is beautiful because they say, he has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, this is comical because you remember in verse 3, they sang and talked about their backs being plowed up and the furrows being long. But now they say, he's cut the cords of the wicked. In other words, they're plowing on their backs, but God cut the cords of their plow. It's like they're moving on their back, but the plow, the instrument that's been digging up the back, has been disconnected. It's just sitting there. The wicked keep moving like they're doing something, but the reality is they're doing nothing. They're just going for a walk. They're not cutting up the soil. And so that's why the affliction has not prevailed, is that God has cut, they say, the cords of the wicked. Their whip is a foot too short. The handcuffs are not secure. The plow just sits there. The pain is gone. And so... This pilgrim is rejoicing at the deliverance of God. And we too must rejoice at God's deliverance, God's faithfulness upon and in our lives. To rejoice that God's faithfulness will bring deliverance into our lives. You know, this pilgrim life, as, I, as I've been mentioning, is not always an easy life. But to understand that God will faithfully deliver you. God will faithfully preserve you and protect you. God will faithfully walk with you and cut the cords of the wicked. I've been thinking recently about the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know, God had promised them a child. And when Abraham was a 100 years old, they still had no child. And when Sarah was 90 years old, they still had no child. But the Lord promised Abraham, 
He said, no, you will have a child. And Abraham at a hundred years old, it says in Genesis 17, verse 17, fell on his face and laughed. You know, it just seemed an absurd thought to him that they would ever have a child at that age. Then a chapter later in Genesis, the Lord confirmed or reaffirmed that same concept. You will have a child. And Sarah overheard it and she laughed. And God said, why did Sarah laugh? Then when they finally did have a child, they named him Isaac because that name means laughter or he laughs. They, they called him laughter. And then later, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And I think that so often this is the way and the pattern of the Christian life. There are certain things that we just can't imagine that God could do. Certain areas of victory that we can't imagine that God would give to us. Certain cords of wickedness that have been strapped to us that are so painful and hard and difficult. And we cannot imagine that God would release us, that God would give the victory. And we kind of laugh at the idea that that would ever take place in our lives. But my belief is that the Lord wants to bring us to a place where he gives us his laughter. Not the laughter of faithlessness, but the laughter of faith, the laughter of hope, the, the laughter that is so thankful for what God has done, rejoicing at God's deliverance. And do you believe that God has cut the cords of the wicked? Do you believe that your old self has been crucified with Christ? Do you believe that you've been set free from sin? God has done it. God has won that deliverance by the cross of Jesus Christ. So we have honesty about the difficulty we have introspection and remember God's faithfulness. And we rejoice because God delivers. But there's one last thing that is so crucial in becoming steeled or strengthened for and by your pilgrimage. He says in verse 5, this wish. And here's how the wish goes. He says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the hilltops which withers before it grows with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the recorded wish of the pilgrims. And it might even seem a little bit harsh or a little bit unloving, but there's something beautiful in it because it has inside of it a hatred of that way of life. What he's saying is he's, is he's saying, my wish is that my afflictors would be put to shame and turned backward. I want them, you know, speaking of our backs being like a crop that's, you know, being plowed or a field that's being plowed. I want them, when it comes to their lives and their fruitfulness, I want them to be like the grass on the housetops. You know, their homes in that era had were made of clay on the roof. And so sometimes those earthen rooftops would grow a little bit of grass, but it would just grow up for a moment. No one ever expected that there'd be a crop up there. It would just shallow, no future it would burn with the summer heat. 
And so he says, that's the kind of life I want them to, to live. I don't want them to be fruitful and lasting. I don't want them to have the kind of life where the reaper fills up his hand. That someone would actually come and say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. In other words, the idea comically is that no one's going to walk up to your home with a little bit of grass growing on the roof and say, what a wonderful crop you have up there on your roof. You are blessed by God. No, the, the idea here is that this is a shallow, insignificant kind of life. And the pilgrim is praying for that. He's wishing for that, that his afflictors and persecutors would be given a shallow, insignificant kind of life. Now, I think that part of the reason that God sometimes desires this for afflictors is so that they would come to the end of their shallowness and turn to the living God. But what the pilgrim seems to be saying in the midst of all of this is that he understands just how shallow that life is. And so a wish here that they have is to avoid the shallow life or to put it positively, we must wish for the deeper life. You know, a life that is meaningful, a life that, it, that has eternal impact. Too many people are consumed with things that are just purely temporary in nature, that have no eternal value or significance whatsoever. But we want to wish for a life that is deeper meaningful, lasting. I remember thinking when I began walking with the Lord that the Christian life would be a very boring kind of life. But I've been proven wrong time and time again. In the Christian life, there is the deepest of loves. You know, love for God, love for people. Your your passion grows as you look at human beings in the eye. You have a love for them. You want God's best for them. In the Christian life, there is a depth of community that is so, can be so powerful, so real. It's not just trite or superficial, but, but there's real connection because of what God is doing. It's not just a physical connection or a soul connection, but it is a spiritual connection with other people. In the Christian life, there is personal transformation. You know, this world is constantly chasing ways to self-improve. But in the Christian life, there's something deeper. There's real possibility for transformation. In the Christian life, I've been exposed to mission and adventure and real peace. And most of all, the mystery of Christ. It says in first, or excuse me, in Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints is this. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, they didn't know of this in previous ages and generations, but the deep life of Christ living in us, transforming us and bringing the glory of God out of our lives. And so the desire to wish for, to long for, to crave the deeper life. I like reading the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, myself and to my kids, I, I read them at different times and seasons of my life. But one of the images that I like so much in it is when Edmund first goes into Narnia and meets the the witch who has called herself the Queen of Narnia. And she gives him the Turkish delight. It's magical 
It tastes like nothing he's ever experienced, but it also created a hunger inside of him. It's like it, it satisfied, but it didn't satisfy, and it eventually drove him crazy. And there's a little line in the book that says that she knew that anyone who tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. And I think so often that's the way of the shallow life. It just can't satisfy. It can't bring us peace. We're chasing and chasing, whether it's fame or success or experiences. But God has a life that is peaceful and beautiful and deep. And so the pilgrim says, look, honestly, I know that this life will be painful. But as I think about things, I know that the pain has not prevailed. And also, God delivers, and I will rejoice over that. So what I wish for is not the life that these persecutors and afflictors live, but I wish for a deeper life. And we can find that deeper life in Christ Jesus. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.